Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. Later on this show, we'll be talking to graphic memoirist Mira Jacob. But before that, we're going to have a little check-in. Hello, Kim. Romolini, how are you? I'm fine. I've been this week really feeling like I have too many pets. <laughs> you have a lot of pets. <laughs> I have a lot of pets. Like, it's really dumb. We just kept collecting pets. We got two cats. My my partner and I got two cats before we had a kid. And like one was sort of foisted on us. They told us that they were bonded sisters. Then they were actually not. And they actually hate each other. And, oh, no. so, but, and so we've had them for 14 years. And then a couple of years ago, my daughter really wanted a dog. And so we were looking for dogs for weeks and weeks and weeks. And one day while I was like on a stage interviewing an Instagram poet, this is a true story. <laughs> my husband and daughter picked out a dog and she is crazy. <laughs> she is a rescue and she is half, she's like part beagle, part pit, part chihuahua, like all these really problematic, like really high energy and like barky breeds. And I feel like a dog failure, like a dog, (laughs) because we have not trained her appropriately. We keep trying and nobody in our house has the discipline to train and socialize this dog appropriately. So she just like is like the other day I was like, stay. And she like laid on her stomach. <laughs> she like laid on her back. Like uh-huh. I can't get it right to be a dog owner. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something. Tell me. You can do the princessy thing that I did. Okay. And sent my dog as I did the previous dog to doggy boarding school. Okay. I mean, our dog has been kicked out as has our child. Both been kicked out of camps. Oh my god, that's <laughs> hysterical! Because Mister, my dog, my dog does not obey. He he learned at doggy boarding school to like not pull on the leash, and he's a beautiful walker. 
and he will sit. He will not come. He will not come. I've tried, I tried to train him last summer. I worked with a trainer to save my life. And if he's, and, and it's a drive because I live right near this gorgeous park where they have off leash hours. Nothing would make me happier right. than to take my dog off leash. He would run for the fucking hills. He would never come back. You know, that's, I mean, that's how I feel about it. The other thing is like, because I didn't choose this dog, like I often say to my husband, like, I feel like this is like your illegitimate child <laughs> that I have to love. That's like, very funny. And I, I do, I do love her, but we have, and also because I think she feels my resistance. She loves me so much. Like it's, it's very intense. Like she'll just sit on the couch next to me, staring at me. And then every once in a while, she'll just bump me with her paw. And I, I really do love her. And I'm trying to be, I'm trying to show up appropriately for this fucking dog. You know? And I feel like a fail. I feel, I often feel like a failure, I think, but anyway, that's what's on my mind. I, I think maybe you don't love the dog. I think it's possible that you're fond of the dog and that you're happy your daughter and husband like the dog, but I think maybe you don't actually love the dog. And you know what? It's so heartbreaking when they die that maybe that's better. Oh my God. Everything about this conversation is horrible. No, I love the one. <laughs> I love the one cat is the real truth. I love the one cat and that's really it. Like I've honestly, this is, I, you know, I love my husband, but I've had fantasies as if we divorced, he would take the dog away. <laughs> like that would be a reason for divorce, right? Like, I'm like, he would take the dog into his like sad dad, dad bachelor pad. Oh my God. Yeah. You, I, yes. Sorry. I'm sure you treat, I'm sure that dog is not abused. I'm sure that dog has a loving home, but you do not love that fucking dog. Oh God. Oh, I'm ashamed. But yes, it's true. <laughs> I don't feel like I've ever seen you quite so clearly. God, you know, cause you want to think of yourself that's better than that, but you're, but Sometimes you're just not. Um, well, anyway, <laughs> let's talk about <laughs> um, Mira Jacob is our guest today, and she's so awesome. And I'm so glad we were able to have this conversation with her. I, she's so smart and funny and just the best. Me too. It was great. Our guest today is Mira Jacob. Mira is a memoirist, illustrator, novelist, and cultural critic. Her acclaimed 2019 graphic memoir, Good Talk, was shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Award and widely considered one of the best books of that year. Mir is also the author of the novel, The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, which came out in 2014. And she runs the Instagram account, Good Talk Thanks, where she often discusses race in America. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and son. Welcome, Mira. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. One of the reasons I really wanted to have you on the show is because not only do I love you and love your work, but because you're like me, kind of a late bloomer. You bounced around jobs in your 20s and 30s, and you published your first novel in your late 30s, and then you wrote and drew your super breakthrough book, Good Talk, when you were well into your 40s. And you just seem to me to be a person who really enjoys getting older. Do you? Oh my God. That's so funny that you asked that. Cause I just, so I just taught my last MFA class for the semester last night. Mm -hmm. And, and it's always funny when you're doing that because you're looking at a lot of faces of people that are between, you know, I, I think the majority of them are in their thirties, I would say, but a lot are in their twenties. And then there's an occasional person in their forties. And I have to say to them, 
You guys, I didn't get published until I was 40 and I've been trying for 20 years. And, and so this is, and I want you to know that because I want you to know that that is not only is it possible, but you can't, you can't take anybody else's like shelf date for your life. That just doesn't, it doesn't matter what people think you are capable of, what people think is your kind of expirational moment. They have no idea. And you have to have a place where, you know, where you sort of allow for the fact that your life isn't going to look like like somebody's sort of Instagram, I wrote, I wrote about this year and it came out the following year. That's just never been my life, you know? Right. I think, you know, another thing that I'm kind of amazed by is the fact that in order to write good talk, you had to actually teach yourself how to draw at like 43, 44. Was, was that intimidating? I think it was before I started. And then mm-hmm. when I started, it was actually just fun. And, and at any rate, it was just a lot more fucking fun than what was going on in the country, which was the nightmare that was Trump and my Trump loving in-laws. So I think the idea of just sitting down and figuring out how lines worked was really a relief from that. Mm-hmm. I also think, I don't know, I don't know how you guys are, but I, I kind of think that I'm at my best when I'm learning. Like that's always kind of a really sweet spot for me to be because there's so much I don't know. And if I'm learning something then it takes almost all of my brain to do it. And my brain is an anxious animal. So if it's doing something else, I'm usually happier. But that's very remarkable because most people when they reach their forties or fifties are not so game to learn new things. Has it been your experience? I hate being bored. Like I actually think my brain works the worst when I'm bored. So I, I've had that, I've had that same experience, but learning new things can be scary. So sometimes you have to work through that fear in order to get there. I mean, I don't know if that was the way it went for you, but. The reason I asked that is because my experience, so my, my parents were immigrants and they had to learn so many things about this country. And there was never a point at which they were comfortable And there was never a point at which they kind of knew what was going on, which meant that as their child, I was watching them learn all the time. And Mm -hmm. part of that is a little bit scary. Part of that is sort of like, oh, my God, my parents have no fucking idea what's going on. Um, They have no idea how to protect me or themselves. But the other part of that that's really helpful is that is that I just watched them over and over again figure out new things, whether it was like how taxes work or to go back to school for this or that, or, you know, what is real estate in America work? You know, how does that look? Just things that they would have to break down. Like my mom became a real estate agent when I was, I want to say 16. And I watched her study and it was wild because I've never seen anybody study like that, by the way. Like I was like, oh, we Americans are just doing it wrong. Um, anyway, but just watching her, she would sit with this book on her lap for eight hours and just and sort of stare into it and go over and over and over it. And I was like, oh, that's a thing you can do. So good talk begins with a really excellent line. And that line is the trouble began when my six-year-old son, Z, became obsessed with Michael Jackson. Can you tell listeners who don't know why you wanted or felt you needed to write this book? So it begins with that line because my... My son, um, so I'm brown and my husband is white and my son sort of landed between us and his obsession with Michael Jackson really very quickly became kind of, you know, am am I like Michael Jackson? Because I think he understood that something was similar, right? Hmm. He's a brown boy. And I think he also just really wanted to be Michael Jackson in a deep way. Like he had the jacket, he had the glove, he had all the moves. 
And, and then I think there was a way in which he, he sort of understood the way the kids do in this sort of, in this sort of guileless, sweet alien way that his dad and I were traveling through the world pretty differently. And so when he was asking me about Michael Jackson at first, it was these really sweet questions. Um, you know, what happened to his other glove, that kind of thing. And then, and then it became much more loaded, which was, you know, well, first he just asked, you know, what color is Michael Jackson? Is he, is he brown or is he white? And I said, well, you know, he, um, his skin was brown. Uh, he's, he's black, which means his skin was brown. Then he sort of turned white and he goes, he turned white. And I said, yeah. And he goes, are you going to turn white? And I was like, no. <laughs> and he goes, um, and he goes, am I going to turn white? And I was like, no, you're not going to turn white. And he said, daddy. And I said, daddy's already white. And he goes, but is he, what, you know, was he always? And, um, and it was so sad, right? It was so sad because I was like, mm. oh, I, oh, I've really messed you up. But also it was this really sweet thing because I realized that he had no idea. He had no idea how race worked, what colors were, or how we were kind of, or how really crazy this world is and how locked into a life you get based on your color. And I knew that. And I also, it was the same time that Ferguson was happening. It was the same time that there were protests going on all around us on the streets and he was figuring that out. And so he was asking me, you know, he kind of got the details wrong, which is later in that chapter. He asked me, um, he sort of was asking about Ferguson. He's like, there's a kid, his name is Ferguson and he got killed because he was Brown by a police. And I was like, yeah, his name was Michael Brown and he got killed in a town called Ferguson. And he said, by a police. And I said, yeah, by a policeman. And then later he asked me, you know, are white people afraid of brown people? Which is just the most bewildering question to answer when mm. it's coming from a six-year-old. Because like, I know how I'd answer that from a you know, 20-year-old. Yeah. You know, and also I know that a 20-year-old would never ask that question because a six-year-old already knows the answer. Right. So in that moment, um, I think what I said was sometimes because I was trying not to lie to him because I also told myself that I wouldn't lie to him about race. I don't think my parents meant to lie to me. I think they might have been lying to themselves in their in their early years in America about race. And so I think they passed that on to me, this idea that that nothing I was feeling was race based. And I never wanted to do that with him. So that's why I said sometimes, which again, is like a pretty fucked up thing to say to a, a six-year-old, right? Because totally. you just want to give them some assurance in the world mm-hmm. and not say something that is, that can go either way. And then, and then the, and then he did ask shortly after that, if, um, is daddy afraid of us? And that's when I was like, oh God, we're in it. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's intense. And the book covers so many of these like really intense and hard conversations, you know, about parenting a brown son through, through the Trump years, about the occasional challenges in your interracial marriage, about dealing with your white in-laws who were Trump supporters. Were you afraid of how it would impact your family long-term? Like what was your feeling putting this work out into the world? And I know I've heard you talk about this, but I, I, I'd love to hear you say it again. Yeah. I mean, I, I was definitely um, worried about the long-term impact because anytime you go public with something so personal and especially something this volatile, especially something that America has 
really big opinions on, and especially if you're a mother, because America really loves to damn a mother. I was like, oh, all of this is a really good reason that you should definitely not say anything. And then the corollary to that is that when you do come out with something that is true, and especially if it's about race, that truth will shift. So whatever I've written now, in five years, there will be a way to look back and see my own prejudices, my own blind spots, my own ways in which I was or wasn't seeing anything. And that is part of being a brown person at the mercy of race in America, is that you're constantly trying to catch the truth of a conversation and catch the truth of what is happening around you, all the while knowing that you're working at this enormous deficit because the world has not seen you as a whole person and sometimes you have learned not to see yourself as a whole person. So you settle for less than you should. You only realize that in the unpacking. You only realize that in the moments that you sort of strive, you know, you sort of stride ahead and hit a different place. So I knew, in other words, so when you ask that question, like, yeah, I knew it was gonna be a shit show putting it down on paper. <laughs> right. um, it's like a lot of things, right? It was a lot of things. Yeah. But I, you know, and, and I also, I think the other thing that I worried about was, was what people would do to my son. Because what was happening to me at that point, and, and Jen, you kind of know this just from the level of, I, I just get a lot of hate mail. I get mm -hmm. um, a lot of racists that get very, very angry with me. And then they write me kind of horrible things all the time. And I'm okay with that happening to me. No, I'm not okay. I hate it happening to me. It makes right. me miserable and it makes me scared. Like, it's not like that's not a big deal. It sucks, but it's me. It's like I'm an adult and I've made the decision to do this work in the world. And unfortunately, this is the ramifications of doing the work in the world. My son never made that decision. So that's, mm -hmm. um, that was the scarier part was what if you, you know, what is it like to go forward with something like this? when you know the world is what it is. Right, of course. And you know, I think about this so much because there's there's so much emphasis on youth and you know, the culture and literature over values, creative wonderkins. But I really was thinking like, do you, I don't know if you could have written this book when you were younger. Oh, for sure not, for sure not. I mean, there is absolutely that thing that, you know, that I saw happen to women as they got older when I was younger. And I think in my twenties, I just didn't know what it was. And I also think I was so frankly, not to like, not to throw around our feminism 101 words, but I think I was so shaped by the patriarchy that I didn't know that I didn't have to be suspicious of it. You know, like I was like, oh, you've just lost your will to care about what people think. And I didn't realize like, and that's a blessing. <laughs> and I don't think, you know, when I was younger, I think, I wouldn't have known that I was allowed to just call it like I see it. Yeah. My, my thoughts and my vision were enough. I don't need to triple check it with sources also because America makes sure there are not sources for me. Right. Right. So that, that work is just going to be what it is. It's always going to be lonely and it's always just going to require stepping into things where there is no backup. Right. And writing is already a lonely, I mean, you're already isolated and lonely. Like, so it's already, you're already in the sort of loneliness bubble. And this is just, I imagine, just exacerbates it. Oh, yeah. You know, when I, it's so funny, John, because actually when I, when I started writing this book, I remember writing to someone I thought was a friend at the time and saying, I'm just very scared. Because if I really write this book, if I really write it the way it needs to be written, I'm going to be so scared and I'm going to be so alone and I'm already there. 
And I don't know if I can do that for a job. And it was crushing because his response, a white man was like, well, all of us are in that place and that's what we're all going through. And I don't know why that would be different for you than anyone else. And we all face it. And maybe you need to buck up. Like he had that whole thing. And I was like, I was like, oh yeah. Okay. Like I don't, yeah, we don't need to talk. We don't need to talk about this anymore. I also heard you say that as you were writing this book, section by section, you'd ask yourself, am I writing this for clarity or vindication? Yes. Can you talk about that? Yes, I can. In fact, it's my favorite <laughs> subject, Kim. Thank you for asking. No, but it really is. It really is because, so I was writing about um, my relationship with my in-laws, which I should just back up to explain that I have been married. I've been with my, with my partner now for 20 years. And we've been married for 17 of those. And so it's not that I was, I was not in a brand new marriage. And I was, um, and I also know that my in-laws love me and they love my son very deeply. And I also know this did not somehow prevent them from voting for a really virulently, openly racist man and telling themselves that he wasn't racist, right? Mm -hmm. So... So when you do something like that, you know, when I was writing that, I was just so angry at points, like really angry. I was angry about some of the conversations we would have. I was angry about how obvious it seemed to me, you know, and I was also, I'm, I'm in a world where the things that are obvious to me, it usually takes <laughs> my, my general, I was talking about this with my, my partner this weekend. I was like, my general feeling is that the things that seem super obvious to me, white people roll around to believing in them like four or five years into the conversation. Like suddenly they're like, oh my God, I am doing that thing. And I'm like, yeah, no, right. And then, you know, and then they have that awkward feeling of like, oh my God, you knew it on along. And I'm like, yeah, no, yes, that is also true. <laughs> right. So, so I knew because I, because I had that kind of level of fury about it. And also the real damage that it was doing to my family. I think I just, there were many scenes that I wrote that were just like, see what they're saying? Knowing that if I put those out, there were so many people that would be like, yeah, in that very sort of Twitter way of like, here's an obvious enemy. And if I say that is the obvious enemy, then I am no longer the enemy. You know, that people, that yes. whole crowd of people. And then I realized like, that's, that's too easy. A, it's too easy because it's just so easy to, um, to, to motivate people to, to want to step away from what in them is ugly. But also because it's just, it's cruel, easy pickings. And the part that broke my heart about my in-laws was not that they were casual, ugly racists, that they were people I love so deeply. Mm -hmm. And they were still willing to do this. Well, I think that that's what's so interesting about this is that this stuff is so nuanced. It's we want it to be extreme, but it's it's more in the nuance of it, right? Like I and I love Completely. that in the book. Like you talk about how much you love your mother-in-law, and you talk about her. You can just tell how much affection you have for her, and you know, and her quirks and everything. And also. It's not even a but, it's an and, right? It's, and I think we forget that and. And, I, we, and you've talked about this. I've seen people talk about this. But we want racists to be bad people, right? Right. And I think that until we can sort of separate that like, oh, we've all been raised in this. This is, this is our, as white people, this is, and, and brown people and black people and white people, this is our experience and our benefit from this. And it's not bad or good. It's just is, right? 
Right. It's not a, it's not a moral failing. It's a system. Yes. Right. And so, so as long as the only thing we can talk about is your feelings about feeling like you've failed some moral test, like we're going to just stay stuck in the system forever. It behooves you if the only thing that we can do is talk about your feelings about failing some moral test, because then you never have to look at what you're actually doing to us. You never have to face those systems. I forget which comedian said this, but I, but I really appreciated it. Um, he, I think it was a he, it might've been Chris Rock. Um, who said, I wish it was as easy to tell people that they're being racist as it, it is, as it is to say, you have something on your face. And they would just take it that way. We're like, you're being racist. And they could just be like, oh, where, where? Okay, great. I got it. I got it. there. Is it there? Okay, great. I'll die. Sorry. Okay, got it. And they, and they would just take care of it rather than being like, how do you know? What does that mean? I don't think that doesn't look like there's anything on my face to me. You know, just this weird, like, I don't know what to tell you, man. Like, you've got shit on your face. Right, right. Or you've got something in your teeth. Right. You've got something in your teeth. I can see it. Why can't you see it? I mean, we can pretend that you don't have something in your teeth, but then I'm just going to be giggling at you the whole time while also weeping openly at what you're doing to my people. You know, like, what, right. what are we, what are the choices here? And you have to wait and you have to wait until they eventually fucking look in the mirror. Right, right. Yes. And, which may which may or may not ever happen. Which may or may not ever happen with their mouths open, right? Like we're just taking the metaphor to an extreme place. But yeah, <laughs> right, right. Like you have to wait, you know, you have to wait. And the whole time you're sort of looking at your watch and watching your life go by and watching your kid grow up and, and sort of, you know, like there's the hilarious part of it. And then there's the part of you that's just keening inside. Being like, please stop. Please stop with your innocence. Please stop with your need to talk about your feelings. I do not give a fuck about your feelings. Please just look at this. Just look at this. And now a word from our sponsors. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin, and I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. 
But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. Sera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry leading sustainability standards. You know, I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Ah. Okay. So you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25 percent off and we're back i thought it was cool how you also took accountability in this book for your own racism right i oh, mean of course. Because, yeah. right because that's the other thing is like we've we other we other brown and black people so much that we don't even consider that like brown and black people also have their racial biases right <laughs> <laughs> we do. of course we do yeah i mean that's so funny um I think the, you know, there's a kind of great uh, word for it, which is internalized racial oppression, right? Which is the ways in which brown and black people learn to be suspicious and undermine each other because this is the system we're in and because ultimately doing that keeps us safe because it keeps white people safe because when white people aren't safe, no one's safe, right? And so what you do is you learn to look at each other and fear each other and also hold each other down and be suspicious about each other and talk about each other's, you know, failings rather than the system that is putting every bit of the board into place and aligning all the players in a way where whiteness is rewarded financially and through stability and through health and through zip codes, <laughs> you know, like all of those things, right, that align. I mean, I know it's a, it's a super, for me, it was really, it was really good to kind of stumble on to that set of words, eternalized racial oppression, because, because when I feel it working in me, it's, it's an easy way to say like, oh, are you doing that thing? Are you doing that thing that you've been taught to do since day one? Are you doing that thing where you're not listening to the, the voice that is either disadvantaged or is having a huge problem that you've been taught not to see or is pointing out something that makes you uncomfortable are you walking away from that because that is the way that you know to protect yourself? And if you are, how do you not do that? You know, one thing that um, I think about with this book and, you know, because it's not just a memoir, it's a, it's a graphic memoir. And so by doing that, you're entering a new medium, which is already scary, but you're also entering sort of into the world of comics bros. Oh my God. Right. Yeah. The comic bros. Yeah. Like, sure. I just was like, why is she such a masochist? Oh my God. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> so real. 
oh they're, yeah they're so Which sexist road? they're so racist and then on top of it they're also ageist you know? oh my god and then they're so angry right they come <laughs> after you i mean there is always the dude i'll just say across every culture there is always the dude that's like why are you doing this and and like why did they take your work and not mine that guy just exists everywhere mm-hmm. but the comics bros are especially wild that way and also because I have a very limited format, as you know, in the book, and I'll just describe it briefly, um, which is that, so like when you're looking at my stuff, it basically looks like a paper doll. I do one drawing and it's always, and I just use that one drawing of a person over and over and over against a photographic background that moves and switches. And sometimes you see a close up of the drawing and sometimes it's a little further back, but it's really a fixed expression, basically paper doll who is speaking on the page. And so it's the most rudimentary, like, it's almost like, it's almost like playing dolls. Like here, here are the, here are the people, here's what they're talking. And at some point you don't really look, you just sort of take note of the body, the way that you would a piece of punctuation, you fill in what's happening there. So it's not about the artistry of each, I would say it's not about the, the kind of unique artistry of each moment. That's not what I was trying to do. I was trying to get people to live in the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Just live in it. Yep. Yep. And I just can imagine because I've seen those dudes come for all kinds of women. And I can imagine the the fallout from them, if there was, was like, what how are you? You're not a comic maker, you know. Like, you're, totally. You're not, totally. You can't, you don't, you don't deserve to be here. What's your comics aren't drawn, you know, whatever. So yeah, just, no, I mean their their big thing is is um Mira Jacob and her quote unquote art. And every time I see that, I feel the thrill of victory. <laughs> <laughs> oh boo, you had to put the art in quotes, didn't you? It hurt that bad. It hurt that bad. <laughs> oof, oof, that got it. that must have killed you. <laughs> That's hilarious. What what surprised you the most about the reaction to the book or your art in the past couple of years? Um, I mean, I'll say what, can I say what gratified me the most? Yes. What gratified me the most was how many brown kids came to my readings, like all sorts of brown kids. And they would talk to me afterward and Sometimes it would just be like pure joy, like, oh my God, I saw myself, I saw myself, I saw myself for the first time, I saw myself. And so it'd be like holding that joy with them and also in that moment feeling like I was talking to the, you know, 14-year-old me that never saw herself anywhere, was trying to look mm-hmm. like her white best friend and it was a disaster. And then the, the other, you know, sometimes there would be, like I'm sort of haunted by the ones that, that weren't joyful, like... Um, a Chinese American woman who had been adopted by a white family and said, I know my mother adopted me to make her feel better about herself. Mm. And she doesn't talk to me. She doesn't really talk to me. And she, she might never talk to me. And to kind of say to that person, that might be true. That might be true. But mm. there's a whole us out here that is waiting for you. You know, there's a whole other us. No, that makes me want to cry, sort of. I know, me too. It makes me want to cry <laughs> thinking about a kid. Thinking about a kid not being seen by their parents is like the the most, ugh, it's so terrible. No, being a, seeing a child who was like adopted as a fetish or something. Is, yeah. Jesus. Right, or just sort of like a badge of honor. Like I did this, I did this thing. Yep. Yeah. By the way, if you guys haven't read Nicole Chung's book, 
Yeah, you read that book? Yes. Well, I mean, Nicole Chung is amazing, just to begin with. Yeah. Say the title, sorry. Um, wait, I'm... I wait, I know. Not, all, the, um, all that you leave behind? All that is, is it all no, that you leave behind? All you, no. all you can never know? All you can never know. <laughs> oh my God, I'm getting old. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think that's right. Anyway... We'll have to we'll have to go back and, and fact check that. But yeah, I mean, that book talks so clearly not not about that exact dynamic, but how many times when in the course of her writing about her own life, she gets angry letters from white parents who basically do that say, how dare you write about this? We are so good because we did this thing. How are hmm. you not grateful? Ugh. Which is just a wild way to, yeah. just a wild way to deal with that information. It's all you can ever know. I looked it up. That's okay. Uh, thank you. Yes, I feel yeah. I feel better about all of us now. Me too. <laughs> we, me so much better. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears a little bit here because um, something I think that our listeners will want to know about because I think it's so cool. You know, we've known each other for a long time. We were coworkers in one of the shitty. This is not what I think they'll think is cool, but, but we were coworkers <laughs> in one of the shittier, crazier office jobs I've ever had long time ago. True. But a yep. few years after that, you left corporate office jobs for a really, let's just say, a pursue of your art, right? And yeah. How did you make that decision and transition? Because it's a big one. And I imagine you don't plan on going back. No, I don't. Although I'm always aware that like people got to make money somehow. So, right. um, you know, there's always a part of me that's like, well, if I have to go back to the corporate world, I guess I'll do that saw my own head off, throw it out the window. Right. Anyway, Same. but yes. Okay. So, um, the truth is though, and I, um, and I like to be really transparent about this, especially for, especially for the Asians in the audience with their, with their parents who, um, who will always say like, what is the job? What is the job? Where's the money? What is the job? I, that decision was made for me. The, the first pass of it, which is that I was working at a another kind of even crazier, believe it or not, Jen, um, website situation. And I was the only parent in a parenting site. I was one of very few, I should say, um, and the only one on the editorial side. And they let me go and replace me with five social media interns. Mm. It, was, it was delightful. Good um, God. Yeah, it was an amazing moment. So there was a lot about that that was very, um, you know, like all the things that happen where you're like humiliated and then you're crying in Soho and everybody in Soho is beautiful and rich and like what's going on. And so I left that day and I and I came home and I was talking to my partner and I had been trying for so long to finish this book. And my agent had been telling me, if you just finish the book, I promise it'll change your life. And the truth is, is that I had two months then and I just, I was like, it was do or die. And I did, I just finished the book that I'd been working on for 10 years. Wow. I wrote the last quarter of it and I wrote it under great duress and, and dwindling resources. And then when we went out with it, I was really, I was really lucky because it did sell and it, it sold in a way that changed my options because then I could do different things. Like I sold the book and then I also sold some international rights. And then I immediately started stockpiling for like, how are you going to make this life in the future? Like, what are you going to do so that you don't have to go back to that grind? And a lot of that was about figuring out how many ways I could sell different parts of my writing and kind of monetize things very quickly. Part of it was um, figuring out how to take my time more seriously and value it much more. I realized especially in the first, in touring with the book, I realized how much my white 
co-authors were paid and also how they were paid for speaking engagements and all of these things that were never offered to me because people felt great if they even had a brown person. They felt like that was the payment was that I was allowed on stage mm-hmm. um, at that point. And so realizing that and kind of understanding that I needed to monetize everything and to do that, I needed to get representation. And so a lot of this was taking myself seriously in slow steps and, and finding out about the systems, which is the really hard part because there is sort of a, a real lack of transparency when it comes to things like that between authors. So finding out about the systems and then figuring out what I needed, what kind of backing I needed to make them work for me. And, and then slowly going about getting all of that set up. So, you know, who's my speaking agent and how does that work? And, and when I'm teaching, right, because I teach a lot, like how can I do gigs that will, you know, supplement a reasonable part of my income so that I don't have to spend every single hour teaching? No, well, what's so interesting about that is you're a creative person, but you were able to think in a way that many creative people, and I speak here of myself, cannot. Yeah, I mean, I do feel like as a creative person, I feel like we have to be better business people than everyone yes. else. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because you know? nobody else has got our back. And, and, I, and I've seen my partner do this over and over. He's a filmmaker. And I've seen, I've seen him sort of take on the business end. And I have definitely watched. I've definitely just been taking notes and seeing, you know, how he negotiates for himself. And we're not in the same industry, but I see... I think I took some of the, you know, the kind of white man seriousness with which he takes himself. And I was like, no, you're allowed that. Like, not only you're allowed that, but that's how that, that's how that dude gets that stuff done. Nobody's going to believe in you. Like, you just got to, you just got to put that on and you've got to figure out a way forward. And then I have very different gods to answer to, right? So my gods are community. My gods are, if you get in a position where you have any kind of access, how do you immediately widen that door and get others in with you so that you have a sustainable way forward as a community, right? Because the only way that stories like mine really get out in the world is if there are many of us in that room talking and demanding and backing each other up and also setting straight people that would say like, that part of the story isn't interesting, but this one is and saying to them, you don't know. You don't actually know what's interesting about the story because you've never heard it before. There are a lot of people that need to hear this part that you don't think is so interesting. The only way that happens is if there are an army of us. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, I'll tell you that my, I similarly left corporate America. I mean, and similarly, similarly, the decision was made for me and I, my life turned around when I stopped being afraid of negotiating and when I stopped thinking I had to be so accommodating all the time. And when I started like valuing myself and saying, no, fuck that. These terms are bad. I'm walking away from this deal. I don't give a shit. There'll be another deal. So mm-hmm. I think it's, it's taking yourself seriously and it's, it's, it's not having a scarcity mindset. And then the larger thing that you're talking about, which is how do we, how do we not only build this for ourselves, which is part of like the, the grossness of the girl boss proposition, which is so narrow and so self-focused, how do the next movement is, right? Cause I think we've gotten down, like carry yourself with the, the with the confidence of a mediocre white man. We've gotten that sort of yeah. down. Yeah. Now the next stage is how do we, how do we make this a, a movement so that we're not, we're not leaving people behind. So we're not so individually focused that, that we're just like the men, right? Oh yeah. Right. No. I mean, cause none of that's working, right? None of that, right. none of that, none of that system that they built is one that is anything 
that we want to kind of forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, you're right. It is a balance between how do I value my time, but in valuing the time in my time, not emulate the people who value their time above all others. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. That I think about that all the time, because I think what was happening was we were like, well, the way in is obviously just to be like them. And like, and then all these women just became monsters like the, the white men were all these white women, let me say, became monsters like the white men. And that didn't solve anything. No, so really actually, didn't. no, it just it just made a whole <laughs> it just like doubled the amount of monsters. You know? it, it absolutely did. It absolutely did. <laughs> I believe that I believe that is the exact way that that played out. It, it, it created more monsters and had the patina of progress. Yes, right. Right. If you were inside it, for sure. If you were outside yes. it, it did not have, it had the, it had the same horrible, weird glaze and blue light of the bad place. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but I also think like that's so much of the, so much of the, the thinking I do now. And so much of what is, is frankly centering when I do feel like I'm losing my rudder is who is the most vulnerable in the community and and how are your actions helping or hurting them, hmm. right? Yeah. You can answer for that in any part of your process. It's a, really, it's a really quick way to kind of ground yourself and say, right, what's happening? What's happening? Right. Now, in Good Talk, you write, I don't, know if America, I don't know if America has gotten more messed up or if I've just run out of patience. Where, do you, where have you landed on that now? I think there was so much that I that I did not know and was deliberately kept from me as I was growing up about America. And I'm sure you guys, um, I feel like we're, we're all maybe in some level of this um, rapid curve of understanding. Even, you know, I was talking about it's so funny, even with all my black and brown friends, and we all thought we knew certain amounts of things, but then there's just more and more and more history coming to light. And I do feel like that is hidden for a reason. There are reasons that we don't know what happened. There are reasons that we are told one kind of story over and over again. So to answer your question, I think America, I think I was at an enormous disadvantage with the level of ignorance I had about how America was made and what has enabled it to sustain itself and thrive. Yes. And I think my, my learning curve similar to kind of what we were talking about before with this idea, you know, that I was saying like, you know, when you write this stuff and you're brown, you know, it's going to be, you're going to know it's going to be outdated within five or seven years, if you're lucky, because that means there's progress, but you're also going to understand what you didn't see, what you didn't value in yourself, what you didn't know. There's always this kind of this incredible destabilizing when you, when you go back and you're like, I thought I loved myself then. and I didn't even love myself then. I didn't even know how to love myself then. Right. Right. That feeling, I think, you know, when we get back to that quote and, and whether it was, I, I had run out of patience, I think it's that I didn't have enough knowledge, but I would also say my, my patience for living in this body where I know that it, I'm probably not going to see the things that I want to in my lifetime. My patience is always thin there. My patience is always very brittle around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it feels to me like you do a lot of educating of white people. Um. (laughs) (laughs) oh my god best okay yeah go on 
Yes, I feel called out. I feel seen. Thank you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Particularly on Instagram. And I I mean, I imagine this is exhausting. And I hear from many of my friends of color that this is exhausting. And what do you wish white allies knew that they don't? I mean, where do we start, Jen? (laughs) Okay, if if we can get to the overall, the overall, right? The overall kind of issue, which I think is an important one. Like I can give you an example of what's of what's happening right now on my Instagram, which is that I just um, went after. I don't know if I if you saw this. So my country, India, is in dire straits right now, my ancestral home. And one of the things that has made me furious is how American yoga gear companies that make bank have said literally nothing about this. I went on all of their pages and they're like, you know, I mean, there was really one. I swear to God, it said like don't just show up to look good, look in your own soul. And I was like, motherfuckers, where? (laughs) Where is it that you are looking in your own soul? Are you kidding me? You have not said shit about all the people that have brought you this entire practice that they've been practicing for millennia before you figured out how to make a buck off a yoga bra. You haven't said anything about their dying and you're still talking about you having a soul? Get a hold of yourselves. But I'll Hmm. tell you that one of the things that has happened in this is I've seen people really calling out both individuals that are making their brand on yoga and larger yoga brands. And one of the things that I see over and over again is the individuals who have made their money, especially the white individuals who have made their money this way, when they get called out, they're like, how dare you? They completely come down with the, how dare you? How dare you? It's the thing, it's the thing in the teeth. It's the thing in the teeth again. And I just, yes. And I just feel like, I just feel like, can you all just, can you all just stop with that? When somebody points out to you that you're not being transparent and that you're not doing enough, instead of how daring you, can you just say, thanks, that's helpful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rethink how I'm doing this. It is not that hard. It is really not that hard. Can you just not make it about you and your feelings? Can you just reroute it to what does the world need right now? Does it need more of my feelings or does it need my help? Oh, it needs my help. Okay, great. Let me do the helpful thing. Like. And that's to me. It's just it's just a very, very, very straightforward way to stop, stop styming a conversation that needs to happen, and stop needing it to stroke your ego. The conversation is going to stroke your ego because it's not about your ego. It's about so many other things that are much more urgent. It's not about you at all. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's about you, but it's about the system, right? It's about the system you're profiting from. It's about the system you are in. It's not about your feelings. Exactly. Yeah. It's not about your feelings. It's about your actions. Right. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one, Jen. If I had to pick one, that's the one. I'm sorry to make you narrow it down. I realized (laughs) we could have had a whole interview just about that. That's okay. I mean, the other one that I'll tell you, and this has no business being like, this is not, but I wish people would stop telling me their feelings about curry. Like the amount of people tell me their feelings about curry is so real. Like they walk up to me and I'm like the curry priest or something. They like tell me like, I love it. I did this with it. Or they're like, I've always hated it. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, I just don't need to, I don't really need to know. I really don't need to. You can just hold that one all by yourself. That's oh, people are so clumsy. They're just so clumsy. It's, I mean, at, at best they're clumsy, right? Yes. Oh. Yes, but they can definitely keep their own curry feelings. I'm good with that. Yeah, that just keep that hilarious. keep that under the lid. Um, Mira, what do you still want to do? Um, I'm sorry, I just had to go with um, keep that under the lid for the curry feelings. You really said that, and it made me laugh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
what do I still want to do? I want to do, so I like, my friend gave me this great metaphor when I was done with my novel and people kept asking for a sequel and it was really wild because most of the characters in that book died and I was like, who do you even write about? <laughs> anyway, and he said this super great thing, which is that he said that he liked to think of his creativity as a topographic map that was kind of all, that was, that was basically just like all white with contours and he was in one quadrant and he wanted to think about what was in the diagonal quadrant. So not even the thing that he could see the edges of, but like what is in the totally different direction. And, and I did that with the, the novel to this book. And I have another idea for something and I don't want to really talk about it, but I'm excited about it for the next thing that I want to make. And it's a totally different thing. It's a totally different direction. And it feels to me that it's very much about stories, very much about how we move through this world, but just in a different way to kind of understand that in a different way and tell it in a different way and sort of refract it in a different way and see if people can follow. Like that's always to me just where the most fun is. Mm, so yeah. it's sort of, you know, it's taking my love of story and just, and just throwing it into a completely different form and, and seeing how that works. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. Where can people find you? Because I want them to find you if they don't know where you are. I mean, I don't know if I, yeah, I do want them to all find you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want them to ask you about curry. I want them yeah, to okay. find you. <laughs> I, so I'm almost um, completely only on Instagram now at Good Talk Thanks. I've sort of peeled away from all the other social medias for a while. So it's just my handle is at Good Talk Thanks, and they can always find me there. And then, of course, I teach writing both at the new school and at the low res program at Randolph College in Virginia. And those are the places they can find me. Mira, thank you so much for coming on. This has been fantastic. You're the best and I love you. And that's all. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. This is really fun. Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your host. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. Our producer is Natalie Rivera. If you want to support the show, please join our Patreon at patreon.com backslash everything is fine. And be sure to rate it and review it on all the platforms, which really makes a difference. You can follow the show's Instagram at EIF podcast, email us at everything is fine, the podcast at Gmail, and you can find Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.